Hello lovely Amy Talks listeners, another episode is upon us. This week I'm speaking to ITV News at 10 host Tom Bradby about his writing career. He's written seven books, a film and a TV drama, and his latest novel Secret Service. We also discuss why he thinks it's important that people speak out about their mental health problems, particularly after his own struggles with insomnia. So it's time for this week's Good News Story. For those uninitiated, basically, the Good News Story is where I share a positive piece of news where either somebody has helped somebody else or helped the community or just been a good person. And there's a really kind of sweet one that really brought a kind of tear to my eye and made me smile. And the headline reads, After 40 years, homeless man will get his degree debt-free thanks to one student and anonymous alumni. So basically this this homeless man in um, Texas has kind of been given a second lease of life uh, because Ryan Chandler, who is a junior year journalism student at the University of Texas, uh, spoke to the homeless man as a means of interviewing him for a class project. Ryan was quite taken aback by the conversation that ensued. He opted to interview David Carter, a homeless man who is commonly seen around the school campus. And this kind of really made me sort of want to highlight the story. Ryan learned that the 65-year-old homeless man used to be a student at the very same university. So David Carter, who is the homeless man in this this story, first enrolled in the school's arts programme in 1971. He dreamed of using his degree to become, you know, an artist or writer, but... After dealing with mental health issues and kind of substance abuse, sadly, he was forced to drop out. So he then spent the next four decades coping with, like, various mental um, kind of health issues and homelessness and addiction. So he returned to the city and he liked to spend time around the University of Texas campus because he kind of dreamt of the day that he would eventually be able to finish his degree in studio arts. Well, that day has uh, now arrived as... Carter was able to qualify for stable housing six years ago. He, with a roof over his head, he tried to re-enrol several times, but he didn't have access to a computer or money for the application fees, so he was never accepted. However, once Ryan Chandler had heard his story, um, he decided to help the homeless man get back into school. So over the course of the last six months since their initial interview, he, Ryan, has worked with college administrators to get his new friend re-enrolled. He managed to get hold of David Carter's sort of records and and found that he had already racked up 87 credit hours. I'm not American, so I don't know what that means. But it's leaving him with only 64 credit hours to go before he could earn his degree, so he's kind of already halfway there, which I think is great. After almost half a year of jumping through hoops, he, he was accepted into the College of Fine Arts and he's now you know finishing his degree which is amazing also kind of on the kind of tuition side apparently Ryan Chandler was initially planning on starting a GoFundMe to raise money but an anonymous University of Texas alumni offered to pay for Carter's entire degree after they read about it in the school magazine, which is amazing. He's obviously been overwhelmed by the kind of sudden surge of support for him and 
people kind of willing to help out he said it's the greatest blessing i've ever received ryan did what he what had to be done to get me enrolled in those classes and i couldn't have done it without him he said what i'd like to do is spend the rest of my life just doing research and writing books but i think the books i write will be better because of the college education and coming into contact with the great minds uh doug dempster who's a dean of the college of fine arts also commented on uh the kind of new new student in the in the class saying david carter's resolve to complete his degree is testament to finishing well what started and interrupted even decades earlier we welcome him back as we do so many students each year whose education took a less direct path we admire his courage and persistence. Oh, bless him. And, like, they put up... Brian Chandler put up a tweet about about him being enrolled and obviously it's had a lot of support and people saying, oh, you, d- you did such a great thing. It's really made me smile and just think that, you know, even after 40 years or however long, you can still get an education and people are still willing to help you out and, and kind of help you get to where you need to be, so... Yeah, I just thought I'd share that with you. As ever, I'm going to put it on in the description of this episode. So if under like links mentioned in the episode. So if ever you want to go and read it and have a smile yourself, then uh, please do go ahead. Oh, by the way, I forgot to say this uh, story is supplied by the goodnewsnetwork.org, which are actually a great site to find inspirational stories like that. I always kind of get my stories in them and it's a really great kind of resource to find uplifting stories that will always make you smile so i'm with tom bradby hello hello how are you very good very good indeed good most people in this country know you as the host of the music town but a lot of people might not know that you've actually been at itn for nearly 30 years you joined in 1990 i know it's a very long time um yes <laughs> People, uh, certainly of my kids' generation, think the idea of working for one company for 30 years is quite out there, really, because yeah. uh, most of them don't think like that. But on the other hand, it's a great company, and they've looked after me incredibly well, and um, I'm, an, I'm a great believer in loyalty, and they've been very loyal to me. So it's actually been a really brilliant place to work, and obviously I've changed jobs quite a lot, and I've done a lot of different specialisms, so I haven't yeah. actually been in the building where I am now sitting for much of my career, I was a political editor for 10 years, I was in Asia for three years, I was in Ireland for three years, so I've moved around, I was in mm. Westminster for quite a long time, even before I was political editor. So I've moved around a fair bit, and even mm. in doing jobs like the Royals or whatever, I was on the road a lot, so actually, I haven't actually really been in here that much, so mm. it doesn't feel like 30 years in one place, if I can put no. it that way. So you've mentioned in other interviews that you're passionate about history, so how come you didn't want to become a historian and decided to become a journalist instead? I think academic history is a particular discipline which appeals to some people and not others. I was mm. always, when I was studying history at university, I was at Edinburgh University, and I really loved studying it. But for me, I found some of the more sort of academic aspects of it quite dry. Sometimes mm. like you'll be studying the French Revolution but you're like, the actual essay you'll be writing will be about, you know, comparing different academics' approaches to one particular aspect of it. And I would slightly sit there on the kind of fifth floor of the library or whatever it was thinking, here I am studying one of the most dramatic events in the entire history of mankind, and I'm kind of focused on this small issue, whereas I really want to be telling, you know, I really want to be looking at the sweeping drama yeah. of it. And I think once you start to think like that, you kind of are much better off directing yourself at a career in journalism because 
And the other thing was I was a student from 86 to 90. So in the, in the late 80s, I would come home from university every day to watch the world changing before my eyes. And on television, you know, the Berlin Wall came down, Nelson Mandela was released. All these extraordinary things were happening. And I would kind of, you know, bunk off university, come home and just sit and watch for hours the world. Mm. And that felt like history happening, you know, sort of epic history happening in front of my eyes. And mm. it just seemed like a natural segue to go mm. from studying it to wanting to report yeah. on it yeah. contemporaneously. And actually, by the way, some of the best books I've ever read are history written by journalists. So yeah. some of the histories of the Vietnam War, like there's a brilliant book called Bright Shining Lie, which won a Pulitzer Prize for uh, a reporter called Neil Sheehan from the New York Times. Is this sort of an you know, enormous, great thick yeah. tome about the Vietnam War, but it's a brilliant... He was there, but he yeah. later sort of wrote... So it's a cross between a narrative account and an academic book. So yeah. I think often the best... The most compelling history is written by people who are actually there and then go back and... Yeah, rather than sort of academic books. Yeah, academic books can be a bit distant yeah. and there, there, there is a massive place for that and I fully respect people who are good at it. it just, also, you know, yeah. that wasn't my particular skills, <laughs> if I have any, <laughs> but definitely wasn't that. Fair enough. I want, to, I want to talk more about your journey into sort of novel writing mm -hmm. as scripts for kind of reports and then the news are obviously very different. So was it more of a natural progression or was it more of a kind of spur of the moment thing where you woke up one day and thought, I want to write a book, I want to try and see? It's, an, it's an interesting question, partly because it was so long ago now, but I, I think I probably on some level knew I'd always wanted to write a book. But there mm. was definitely a waking up one day and having an idea and just thinking, you know. So I was in Ireland, I was kind of a very young correspondent there. And when I went, the troubles had been going on for decades. No one thought there was any chance of anything ever really changing. It felt like the most intractable kind of conflict anyone had practically ever seen. And then suddenly when I was there, even I think it was actually after about three weeks, the first rumours that the IRA might have been secretly talking to the government and that then the IRA might be interested in some kind of peace process started to emerge. And then there was a huge debate about whether they were or weren't serious, which... You know, which did feel like sort of you know you were witnessing the first draft of history and that just got me to thinking a lot about what might or might not be going on in the IRA and that kind of led me to the idea which was I'd had a lunch with somebody senior in the intelligence services partly because you were trying to find out what their view was from their own informers about what was really going on in the IRA and then in the afternoon I went up to the sort of Sinn Féin kind of headquarters which was the political wing of the IRA and I just, I'd spent a lot of the lunch talking because I just was interested in a human way about what it was like to run informants in the IRA, you know, because you're living so close to each other. The two communities were only miles apart. They watched the same TV shows every night, spoke the same language. And I just thought that was a really interesting idea. And that was the idea for my first mm. novel, Shadow Guns. Your current or latest book is called Secret Service. So for those who don't know, what's it about? Well, it's about, so I think as a, probably motivated by a number of things. One is, as you've sort of indicated in writing novels and subsequently films, but ever since I was really a journalist. So part of you just wants to write a great novel that's going to be up there with the, the carries or the whatever. And I've spent years and years of sort of hard graph learning how to write novels. Partly, though, inevitably, as a journalist, you also sort of want to capture the sort of spirit of the times you live in, the slightly crazy times you live in. And I mentioned, as a student, I was reporting on, I mean, as I was coming into journalism, the Cold War was coming to an end and all the rest of it. And now we're sort of suddenly, 
30 years later pitched into a kind of new Cold War where the Russians are very active again, they're trying to undermine the West very clearly. So the idea behind it is a mid-ranking MI6 officer who's a kind of wife and a mother and trying to look after her own Alzheimer's mother who's rather poisonous. She's trying to keep it all together and suddenly she's um, she runs an intelligence operation to bug a Russian oligarch super yacht. She finds herself listening to a conversation amongst three of their intelligence officials and from that conversation yields the intelligence that the British Prime Minister's got prostate cancer and is about to resign, which nobody in Britain knows, and that one of the leading candidates to replace him is potentially a Russian spy, but it's not clear which one. And the moment I sort of had that idea, I just thought, that is the juiciest idea I've ever had, and I've got to sit down and write it, and I did yeah. very quickly. It's also very coincidental that you've released it now, because the actual Prime Minister resigns tomorrow. I, I know. <laughs> I know. It was, I'm doing it their was, marketing it, for you. Yes, it's quite weird, the government's uh, assistance with yeah. my marketing. Uh, but, um, <laughs> yeah, I don't think even I could have foreseen the fortuitousness of the time. No. But I suppose what you were trying to do is you are trying to have a big idea. You know, that felt like a big idea. And yeah. what I was really trying to get at was, you know, what would it be like to be a kind of mid-ranking MI6 yeah. officer coming to work and having that kind of nuclear weapons-grade knowledge really yeah sitting on your desk well what are you going to do about it and i thought mm. that was really yeah. interesting and what you know inevitably when you're trying to channel the spirit of the times in that way then in some sense i just got lucky with the marketing but that, <laughs> you know we are living in unusual yeah. physical times so unusual yeah. things are going to happen definitely definitely you decided to share the book on the pigeonhole platform where your publishers did yes which allowed the the users to kind of read and comment on the book so why did you decide to let the that was the publisher's choice really I think it's quite a good way of I haven't I wrote a lot of books um, and then I turned one of them as we discussed Shadow Dancer into a film with Clive Owen and Gillian Anson and Andrea Riseborough and then I got slightly seduced I suppose into a lot of screenwriting for a while which I really enjoy but the issue with screenwriting is you can spend a lot of work on something and then sometimes for very good reasons it just never you know quite makes it production never happens director moves on, times change, ideas go out of fashion, whatever it may be. Whereas with a novel, you have an idea, you write it, it gets published, well, hopefully it gets published, but, and it, you know, you realise your story and then you can, you can go on to adapt it. So it was, I suppose, you know, that's possibly why I got seduced, but also why I came back to novels. And therefore, not having published a novel for a while, you've got to sort of it's really important to do the hard yards of engaging with readers yeah. and this felt like a good way of getting a community of people talking about it. It's also, I found it really fascinating to be able to engage with people and to see their reaction as they read it. It yeah. was a sort of really, I've never done that before and it was kind of, it was an extremely illuminating and probably is for any writer quite a useful process. Yeah. So I want to delve more into sort of the research process. So what research do you do and kind of how long do you research before starting a book and obviously since your last novel and now, mm. kind of things like Google have moved on a lot more. So yeah. do you use Google for research? I do use Google for research. Um, inevitably, a lot more is online. I mean, I'll give you one example. When I wrote the novels, The White Russian, which is set in St. Petersburg just before the Russian Revolution, which I really enjoyed writing. I mean, I went to St. Petersburg, I did a lot of research, I did a lot of, read a lot of memoirs at the time, I did a lot of research in the archives. So, for example, if you're researching all the guards' regiments in the Tsarist era, you kind of need to get, you know, you need to get them right, you need to get their uniforms they wore right. That just requires quite a lot of research, which I, I did myself, mostly. Um, my mother helped me out, actually, but, you know, when we hired a Russian researcher between us, but it was, it was a fun process and a great... 
But for example, there is a journey in that book where the two of the main characters go from St. Petersburg to Yalta, and then there's a, there's, a, there's a portion of the novel that plays out in Yalta. Now, realistically, it was too, you know, I did go to St. Petersburg, but it was too time-consuming. So I actually hired a Russian researcher to go to Yalta, film the journey and film it all. Well, nowadays, you probably almost certainly find that journey has been filmed by somebody and put on YouTube. So yeah. you actually sort of don't. So there's a, there's a sort of, there's all kinds of sort of, I, I still would try and go and do the major locations mm. and the major research myself because yeah. I think it's important for authenticity. But there are, there are ways of, of kind of making something feel authentic if it's like a one-page scene. You're not going to mm. probably go halfway around the world to research. <laughs> yeah. So there are shortcuts. Sure. What inspires you to write? What you see kind of in your news job or what you read in books or is it both? I think probably I suppose the interesting thing is that my, that my two careers have been completely separate a lot of the time but have overlapped. So with Shadow Dancer, it's clear there's an overlap and that my news job inspired the idea. But also reading a lot and loving novels and loving stories and loving films inspired that and so you're wanting to kind of capture a story but there have been various periods where you know obviously writing a novel set in St. Petersburg just with the Russian Revolution really didn't have a lot to do with my news job apart from I suppose having a sense of what it is to live through tumultuous times mm. and the people trying to get on with ordinary jobs and what interested me about that was of course even when society totally and government totally breaks down crimes are still committed yeah. You know, people still die and turn up at the morgue. Doctors are still needed, but also so are detectives. But mm. inevitably, part of the context in which a detective operates is political. So I just thought that was a really intriguing notion. So I suppose, I suppose honestly, it's usually a human idea. You know, in in this case, an MI6 officer kind of trying to keep her domestic life together whilst dealing with this enormously important, complex political situation that she's effectively handed like an unexploded bomb. In the St. Petersburg one, it's a sort of city detective trying to just do his job as everything around him and everyone around him is sort of disintegrating. So it's usually a kind of human idea in the middle of a sort of political, a complex political context. That's usually what interests mm. me. Okay. So obviously, as, as we've mentioned, you had a transition into a screenwriter with uh, Shadow Dancer and you, did, you wrote The Great Fire for ITV. Mm -hmm. How is it different to writing a book? Is it kind of easy to adapt a book into a film? Or? I found it extremely hard learning to write novels. Most of what I learnt in journalism just didn't apply. So effectively you're having to learn a new skill from scratch. I was extremely lucky to have a really brilliant literary agent, Mark Lucas, who basically taught me everything the hard way. I mean, I wrote so many drafts of my early novels I couldn't even really begin to describe. I mean, many, many drafts, quite a lot of them just went more or less in the bin because they just weren't good enough. And so I gradually learned the hard way about storytelling and structuring and the importance of structure, particularly for thrillers. When it came to writing the film with Shadow Dancer, I, felt, I found realistically that I'd done a lot of the hard yards in writing the novel. So there was definitely a learning curve, but to some extent writing a film is a little bit the structure of writing a novel, but the actual writing kind of style of... I mean, as a broadcast news journalist, I've spent my whole career writing to speak. I, you know, I don't write newspaper articles, yeah. I write to suit my own voice because yeah, that's yeah. how I talk. And really, when you're writing a film script, you, you, you know, so my day job has quite tuned me to the idea. Yeah, you end up with an ear for dialogue, I suppose, and mm. an ear for how characters speak differently because that's what's around you all the day and that's the way you write. And sometimes mm. when you're, 
you know, in the early part of your career, you're not even writing for yourself. You might be writing for a new, you know, somebody else. Mm. And then you're really having to get, to, okay, how do they speak? How would they say this? And all the rest mm. of it. So the really good writers can effectively write in someone else's voice yeah. in broadcast news. So, so I, it was a little bit of both. I think I think the transition to, from book to film was a little bit less painful than mm. into books to begin with. That was yeah. just a very slow, hard process. What have you learned about yourself from writing your first book in 1998 to now? Um, I don't know what I learned about myself. I, I think, um, I, I would say that generally speaking, most things that anyone achieves in life, I mean, there are definitely people who have a unique talent. So even in just in the fictional world, you'll sometimes read a book of prize winner or something and you think, wow, that is just, that person has just an extraordinary talent of the way they write and express themselves. In the sort of books I write, thriller writing, I mean, there's definitely talent at work with the best writers, but a lot of it is hard work. And I think, I suppose, what I've learned about myself is that I appear to have been willing to absorb an awful lot of punishment over the years. I mean, even now, even now you get up wanting everything to be easier than it is. Yeah. Everything in the working world is always hard. Achieving everything is always hard. And I don't think anyone should ever imagine that anything's ever easy. Even when it looks easy from the outside because someone appears to have quite an easy, gilded existence, first of all, it probably took a lot of hard work to get there, yeah. and secondly, it probably takes a lot of hard work to stay there. And every time I think something's going to be easy, it never is. <laughs> Everything's <laughs> always life. harder than you think. It's life, yeah. Does writing excite or exhaust you? And if either one, why? Both. No, it never really exhausts me. It excites me. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a very liberating thing to be able to... Do. It's a great escape from the day to day. It's a really wonderful kind of hobby to have, I suppose. A bit mm. more a hobby, but it's a wonderful thing to be able to do. Obviously, if you do too much, you get a bit exhausted when you've kind of really had a big thing where you've been writing, you know, you might have been writing a novel and kind of it all comes kind of, you know, you've been really in, working very hard on it for a while and you get a bit exhausted. But it's basically something I do for love, for sure. Can move on a bit to yeah. presenting now? Sure. You've had time as a foreign correspondent. Mm -hmm. Did you wonder what you had got into when mm -hmm. covering conflicts? Obviously, there's an element of risk, but did said risk encourage you to go out there more, like adrenaline, mm. or did it, or did the risk scare you? I think that I think the issue is you start out in a job like that wanting to be there out of intellectual curiosity, because you're a person interested in the world. I think, as I said, as a history student, I always kind of thought as I was studying these big subjects, God, wouldn't it have been amazing to be there? Wouldn't it have been amazing yeah. to be with, uh, you know, covering the French Revolution or whatever? Of course, when you actually get there, sometimes it's quite dangerous and scary. So I think when I was doing it, I ended up quite conflicted about it. And yeah. before I got shot, I spent a lot of time wondering whether it was the kind of, you know, as a young father, whether it was the responsible thing to be, do, to be doing it. And then after I got shot, there's a sort of a weird kind of, flick of your kind of psychology in a way because part of you thinks oh, well I got shot and I survived so clearly it's possible to manage the risk and another part of you thinks well you got shot why wouldn't you go and think of doing something else so it was a kind of conflict I never entirely resolved in my head but clearly in the end I moved away from doing it after I got shot so perhaps that tells yeah, tells you something I think it's very mm. difficult to sustain that job for a long period of time and I can totally take my hat off to people who do I think it's a very tough it's a very tough thing to do. Yeah.
part of war or kind of natural disaster stories is to intrude on people's lives, particularly their grief. Is that ever been uncomfortable? I think one of the things about an organisation, one of the reasons I'm with an organisation like ITN and ITP and I've stayed with them is that even as a very young trainee when you're effectively a nobody within the organisation in terms of, you know, kind of status, I suppose, um, or felt felt that way at the time. I was never put under pressure to do anything I felt uncomfortable with. And that is why I'm still here. You know, TV news, we, we're very closely regulated, not only about our content and what we put out, but how we conduct ourselves. Yeah. Um, I think everyone is acutely sensitive to that. You know, the last thing you'd want to do is make anyone feel uncomfortable. And you know, sometimes people do want to do want to talk because they want to sort of draw attention to the extraordinary nature of what's happened. And one has to respect that, but equally you have to respect if they absolutely don't, which in many cases mm. they don't. But I think it's about conducting yourself with humanity and sensitivity and caution. And that is mm. the hallmark of this organisation. And mm. I just wouldn't be here if it wasn't. At least I hope it's the hallmark. It, it is the hallmark. I mean, no, it's just people are very... I mean, if I ever phoned up, even however junior, to say, listen, I, I don't feel comfortable doing that. No one ever said, oh, I don't care how you feel, get on with it. It was always like, no, OK, fair enough, back off. Fair enough. So, as you mentioned, you got shot in Jakarta during a riot in 99. What happened? You don't mind it me. was a big night in Jakarta because it was a, um, it was after Suharto fell and mm. Megawati Khan Putri had won the most votes and the most seats, but MPs were probably not going to make her the new president. And her supporters had come to town and kind of made it clear that there would be trouble if she didn't get the post, and she didn't, and there was. And so there was basically sort of anarchy for a night, which was pretty frightening to be in a part of. And I just didn't end up sort of stuck between the protesters and the riot police outside of the parliament building and just was a case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And rocket flare came in and sort of hit me in the lower right leg. So it just was, you know, in those kind of situations, you're always trying to be careful, do the sensible thing, do the cautious thing. But I just was unlucky. So there you go. There's obviously, as you mentioned, such extraordinary times within the news agenda at the moment. Do you wish you were still a reporter covering current events? No, because I really love my job and it's a great privilege to have it. And in a way, what you're trying to, what I feel you, you one is trying to do, what I'm trying to do, is kind of communicate to people in a meaningfully empathetic way and to sort of bring them along in the journey, the discussion really of what extraordinary times we live through. And that's a relatively new challenge. You know, after so long of being a reporter, that's actually quite a new challenge. Mm. You know, with a reporter, you have your speciality. You're making sense of a subject or trying to, to for your audience. Whereas this is almost like sort of being a conductor of an orchestra where all your musicians are your specialists and you're trying to kind of bring them all together and present mm. it as a coherent whole to the audience. And the more extraordinary times you live through, in a way, the more interesting that job is. Mm. So... For the time being, also I think, you know, I was a political editor, for example, for 10 years. I mean, that is unquestionably a brilliant job. I loved every second of it. 10 years is quite a long time. I mean, I could have gone on doing it but for a yeah. while longer, but I was offered this. And, you know, I thought if I'm political editor for 15 years, some of the things are going to start to repeat on themselves yeah. and feel like there's only so many summits on the other side yeah. of the world you can go to where you'll sort of bust into an underground media centre and left there for three days before you start <laughs> to slightly dread those sort of things. So Yeah. You have a bit of a sort of light-hearted news style. Some people have uh, shown their opinion about it. I like it. It makes the news a bit more bearable to watch. 
I also might agree with some of what you say. The little comments. So what was the thinking behind that? You're just trying to bring a bit of humanity to the news. I mean, you know, I suppose I'm just generally speaking quite an irreverent personality and probably always have been. So you're trying to... I don't know. I mean, the news can sometimes be feel like a bit of a hard grind. Not all of it is good. It's important that we not. report on serious stories. Yeah. I think if you try and bring a bit of humanity to it, hopefully that makes it sort of more digestible, more watchable, more palatable. I mean, it's one of those things you don't, you know, I was specifically asked to do the news in the way that I am. And uh, you know, I'm sure there, there, are, there are people <laughs> to their taste. But one of, one of the things is, you know, we have a, the BBC in this country. The BBC has an amazing news brand. We're up against them on a day-to-day basis. We even have our flagship program at the same time as them. If you're not doing something that's a bit distinctive from yeah. what they're doing, you're kind of always at risk of just being overshadowed by them. So I think, you know, we have moved what we're doing to be something that is clearly distinct and different, yeah. and I'm absolutely certain that isn't for everyone. Yeah. And some people <laughs> tell me so, but clearly, hopefully, some people do like it. So, you know, and you're, it's horses for courses. At least I think we've got to a good position where they're doing one thing, we're doing another. Nobody who's ever watched both bulletins can say they're the same. Clearly no, not. no. Okay. Obviously, you've struggled with insomnia recently. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was widely reported last summer. Uh, I wanted to mention it because mental health is important to me mm-hmm. and my listeners. Uh, I made episodes about it, like anxiety and stuff. How did the insomnia manifest itself? Do you to talk about it? Yeah, insomnia is obviously what you get when you're totally depleted, ironically. Mm. So you, you get to the point where you've, for whatever reason, you've exhausted yourself over quite a long period it's quite a natural human mm. evolved instinct to worry about how tomorrow is going to turn out to, to some extent spend your time kind of thinking about how you're going to mitigate the threats of tomorrow mm. and obviously the human beings who evolved that instinct to a relatively good level were probably survivors when we were being chased mm. by you know woolly mammoths or whatever so it's a natural instinct if you do it too much it becomes, as you probably know, a cycle where you, you know, you're, you're sweating it too much, basically. And then the more you sweat, the, the probably less well you sleep. Yeah. You're taking all your stresses into your sleep. Now, if you take that to an extreme over a very long period of time, you get to the point where you suddenly one day just don't sleep at all. And obviously, that would be difficult for anyone to handle. Oh, it's quite frightening. To... Yeah, very. Well, very because you don't know what's happening. And you can't work out what's happening. And then you're kind of trying to come in and do news at 10 and broadcast to millions of people when you just literally feel absolutely awful. So yeah. um, so that's why, in the end, you know, I was lucky to be able to be referred to very good mental health help. Mm. And, you know, I was signed up for three months and the psychiatrist basically took me through a whole process of effectively sort of almost shutting down my entire operating system. And then I went and then home like- and I did nothing. And then rebooting it with kind of new ways of thinking and approaching the yeah. world and everything else. And so you come out the other end feeling very liberated and much more content than you've yeah. ever felt. But my, I guess one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about it was I wanted anyone else in the same position to know that they're not alone, obviously, because mm. um, it can be very lonely, as you perhaps know. And secondly, that, you know, to urge them to do something about it, because obviously you can get better, you can liberate yourself from whatever yeah. it is that's troubling you. It takes time and effort. Yeah. And probably some good help but it can be done and you know there's a much more yeah. intent life on the other side of it yeah you wrote an article for sunday times about it mm. and you mentioned having an anxiety attack mm. like when you sort of 
decided that maybe it's time to get some help. So what happened with that? And what point did it get to? And how long hadn't you been sleeping before you admitted you had a problem? You get anxiety attacks when you've when you've pushed your body to total breaking mm. point. So you get to the point where you've been, you know, you've been worrying about things, or you've been pressurising yourself, and you've been. In my case, I'd got totally depleted, so it was my body's way of telling me that it could no longer cope. So I'd actually been feeling pretty awful for quite a while, mm. and then I guess I probably stopped sleeping about two weeks before that, or ten days before that, and then you kind of get into a bit of a mess where you're kind of taking sleeping pills to sleep, but you're so so wired, you're not even sleeping well with them. Properly, yeah. Yeah, and then you kind of think, oh my god, what's happening to me? And you don't really know, and then you get once you get into the position where you just don't know I mean half of getting better is admitting you've got a problem fessing up to people going to get help and then principally educating yourself about wow. how you got into that mess in the first place and that educational process is incredibly liberating and hopefully totally revolutionizes yeah. your psychology so that you wouldn't hopefully ever get into that yeah. position again yeah. Because to be fair, it takes quite a lot of running yourself down over yeah. a long period of time to yeah. get to that. I have many people, many people have written to me since I had all that and sort of talked about it publicly. And one of the things I find is that when I talk to younger people, and one day I'd kind of like to I think make a sort of public education film about it, and I'm trying to work out the best way to do that. But I think mm. it's helpful when people in my position who appear to have this sort of I don't know, you know, but appear to be quite senior or yeah, quite, yeah. you know, sitting behind this great big desk, apparently totally in control and everything else. It's quite, it's potentially quite helpful, I think, if we admit our frailties and talk about it. And yeah. then hopefully people who are much younger will realise that there's nothing unusual or surprising no. in this and that it's merely important to educate yourself yeah. and, get in, and get through it. But it's it's something anyone can suffer and many people do and you know there's everyone from Prince Harry to Prince William to many many other people are acknowledging these things talking yeah. about them now and I think it's it's helpful to do so because apart from anything else once you go through the process of educating yourself and rewiring your thinking yeah. you end up much more resilient for whatever life may throw at you tomorrow yeah the idea that you you sort of are strong for not talking about it is kind of fundamentally misconceived I think. definitely I think because kind of the social media generation mm. as well, like mm. being perfect on Instagram, and like yeah. Yeah. so toxic. I think the thing about it is that the social media generation, I think people are hyper-stimulating themselves. Mm. So this thing, and for the record, I'm picking up my phone. <laughs> you know, this is a, you know, you can look at that every five seconds all day. And when mm. you do, it stimulates you in some way. You know, you're yeah. on a social media, you're surprised, you're upset, you're whatever it is, you're, or you're just interested. Yeah. The trouble is, what, what, that, what that contributes to is a world in which you never switch off. Yeah. And when I was growing up, one of the things I had to try to do when I was off was to rediscover the periods in my youth when I would stare out the window. You know, when I, when yeah. I was, when you were on a long train journey or a bus journey when, mm. I, when, you, you know, when I was age, you know, if you didn't want to read your books, you felt sick in the back of the car, there wasn't really anything to do. No. You know, you couldn't be on your phone, you couldn't be on your iPad, you just would stare out the window for four hours. Now, the thing about <laughs> that, the thing about that is that, you know, sometimes we need to do that. Yeah. Sometimes we yeah. need to do that. And that's what we don't, any of us, are, we're not very good at. Yeah. Days. Fair enough. You did the Wills and Kate engagement interview. I did, yeah. 
So what was your approach to it? Because apparently you didn't get much sleep. I didn't all. get much sleep the night before. Um, um, and, yeah. also, and also you, you know them personally, so kind of how was it doing the possibly biggest interview of your life? Because the Charles and Diana one didn't exactly go well. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think I mean I thought it would be easier for them because you know they knew each other a million times better than Charles yeah, yeah. did, and and you know so there was that, and I suppose it was a, it was a, I mean in one sense it was the easiest interview anyone's ever going to be able to, and in one sense it was quite tricky. The the, the sense in which it was tricky was, I mean obviously you're not going to do a sort of Paxman style grill. No, no, I don't think anyone wanted to watch that. It would have been kind of fun. at the same time you, you kind of wanted to try and ask some real things mm. so it was I mean I didn't I, it was one of those things I suppose like all interviews where you slightly go on instinct and you just think well I'm gonna I'm just gonna slightly fly by the seat of my pants here and sort of ask slightly whatever comes to mind you know it wasn't as if there was anything massively controversial to put to them or whatever I mean I said to him beforehand look my main aim here is not to ruin your happy day and he was like yeah that would be good you know because <laughs> you're trying to you know, you're trying to... Really, it was about people getting to know her, particularly yeah. because they'd never heard from her before, and them as a couple. So to some extent, you're just, I don't know, you're just nudging them to reveal yeah. a bit more of themselves. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it was an odd day. Yeah, I can imagine. Do you have any other projects on the go that you'd like to tell us about? Well, I'm always writing something or other. Um, yeah. I probably won't. I never like to talk about it until it's out there. So, I mean, I'm, I'm writing another book um, after Secret Service. And, um, Is it, like, on all well, the same I'm theme? Think I'm, yeah, I think I'm writing a kind of sequel. I, when I say I think, I am <laughs> writing a kind of sequel. Okay. I've, I've also written another historical novel, which I actually wrote a while ago, and I'm not quite sure whether that is going to come out first or not, so we're sort of debating that. Um, but, yeah, so I'm, I'm always kind of at work. I'm all, you know, I have, ever since I started writing Shadow Dance, there's never been a period when I wasn't writing something, yeah. a film or a book, or sometimes, you know, jogging between the two. I only ever write one thing at a time. Yeah. But obviously films kind of go and come back, go and come back and go. I mean, you know, no film or TV drama script ever stays static. It's always going yeah, and yeah. coming back with notes. So there's you know, sometimes quite long periods in which I might yeah. be concentrating on a novel in between. Okay. Thank you very much, Charles. For well, today. my pleasure. Good luck with it all. And, <laughs> Thank you very much. And, you know, hope it goes well. Yeah. So that's all for this week's episode. I want to say thank you very much to Tom for taking part in the interview with me. I really appreciate it. If you want to go and find out more about his book, Secret Service, you can do. You can buy it in Waterstones or WH Smith or anywhere that sells books. Uh, also, if you're from the US, it it's available on the Target website, I think, for pre-order. So definitely check it out if you're, if you're over there. If you want to go and follow Tom on Twitter, you can do. He's at Tom Bradby. Tom is also fairly new to Instagram, so if you want to go and follow him on there, he's at tom.bradby to see what kind of photos he posts. If you wish to subscribe to the show to hear more from me, you can do so on iTunes, Spotify, Mixcloud and Stitcher. On iTunes, Spotify and Stitcher, literally just search Amy Talks and I should be there. Show is on Mixcloud at mixcloud.com slash amytalkspodcast. I'm also on social media as well if you wish to get in touch with me, uh, let me know your thoughts or just have a chat. You can reach me at Amy Talks Podcast on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time, bye.